Hello and welcome to another podcast presented by the Medical Council of New South Wales. This episode contains vital information for New South Wales doctors as we discuss the prescribing of opioids and drugs of addiction. What are the rules and what are the important issues now facing New South Wales doctors? We'll hear expert advice from Dr Brian Morton, a GP and Medical Council member, and Mr Bruce Batty, Director of the New South Wales Pharmaceutical Regulatory Unit. Your host for this podcast is Dr Martine Walker, a GP and long-term hearing member and medical advisor for the Medical Council of New South Wales. Thanks for joining us today, Bruce and Brian. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. So, Bruce, before we talk about the rules around prescribing, can we talk a little bit about who's who in the zoo when it comes to prescribing? Because I know a lot of, at least my general practitioner peers, are a little bit confused. Yeah, well, the pharmaceutical regulatory unit is responsible for the operational uh, compliance with the poisons and therapeutic goods legislation in New South Wales. This includes undertaking inspections, investigations, and the issuance of a whole range of authorities in compliance with the legislation. And how does the PRU fit in with other regulators like Medicare, TGA, Medical Council, HCCC? Well, first of all, the TGA is responsible for a product to ensure that uh, medicines uh, that are sold in Australia are efficacious, they are safe and they're of high quality. So their role finishes at the end of the production of the product. Medicare administers the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme is basically to subsidise the cost of medicines to the Australian population. So it only applies to those medicines which are listed on the PBS and I guess PBS should be regarded as almost like an insurance company to assist the population. Council, on the other hand, administers the national law in New South Wales, Health Practitioner Regulation National Law, uh, which basically looks after the professional practice of health practitioners. Coming to S4D and S8 medications, what are the rules surrounding prescribing those medications? There are many rules. However, probably the most pertinent ones are that any medicine, whether it be Schedule 2, 3, 4 or 8, should be prescribed in a quantity and for a purpose that accords with the recognised therapeutic standards of what is appropriate in the circumstances. Regarding Schedule 8 drugs, there are extra obligations to obtain authority under certain circumstances. Mm. So can you tell me a little bit more about the New South Wales authority to prescribe? Because that's different to the PBS authority, isn't it? Yeah, this is the legal authority to prescribe and this applies to whether it's PBS or whether it's a private script, it doesn't matter. And in New South Wales, an authority is required prior to prescribing a Schedule 8 drug to a drug-dependent person, prior to prescribing dexamphetamine, lisdexamphetamine or methylphenidate, and prior to prescribing beyond two months for a small range of Schedule 8 drugs, which includes uh, methadone, buprenorphine, hydromorphone, alprazolam, flunitrazepam, any injectable Schedule 8 drugs, and any drug which is going to be applied 
intranasally or to a, a mucous membrane. So in all those cases, if the patient's going to have those medications beyond two months, an authority is required. And I think one of the more recent additions is, is alprazolam, isn't it? And well, alprazolam has now been scheduled for a number of years, mm-hmm. so it's not very recent. Um, mm. I, I, my recollection is it goes back to about 2017 or round about then, yeah. It might be 2016. Because yeah. uh, I know a, f- a few doctors were sort of confused about that one. Yeah, it's very interesting because flu nitrazepam, when it went to Schedule 8, there was a big dip in the prescribing of that drug. The same hasn't happened for some reason with alprazolam. Because in fact, I believe that the uh, volume of prescribing of alprazolam has increased since it's actually gone Schedule 8. So the most common time we at the council have contact, get, get a phone call from you, Bruce, or, or a letter from you, is when you've undertaken an investigation and found concerning prescribing. How does the PIU know to investigate a doctor? How do they know to look at a doctor? A PIU receives many, many notifications. So each year we receive over 2,000 notifications come to us. Obviously we can't. We don't have the resources to investigate each one of those, but we have a risk-based approach and using that risk-based approach, we look at the risk to the patients, whether they be known or unknown people, and we launch our investigations based upon that risk-based approach. Now, I can tell you that in the case of Schedule A drugs, what we're mainly concerned about at the present time because of the potency and the risks to the public, we're concentrating very much so on fentanyl prescribing, fentanyl patches, also high-dose oxycodone tablets, 40 milligram, 80 milligram, and uh, also a lot of alprazolam prescribing because we find that's often prescribed when the other drugs, other Schedule 8 drugs, are prescribed simultaneously. So Bruce, earlier this year some new drugs were added to the Schedule 4D category of medications, growth hormone, pregabalin, tramadol. Why was that done and what implications does that have for doctors in their day-to-day practice? Look, the reason that that occurred was because of reports received by police that these drugs were liable to trafficking. And to enable police to arrest people who had these in their possession, who were not authorised to have them in their possession, in other words, they weren't prescribed for them, they needed to have these added to Appendix D of the regulation. The impact of that to a doctor prescribing these is very little. The main impact would be that the prescriptions are only valid for six months, where for a normal Schedule Four drug, the prescriptions are valid for 12 months. So it doesn't have implications as far as needing to get a New South Wales... Ministry of Health Authority, for example, doesn't change that? No, it does, does not change that. There's a subcategory, which is Appendix B, which includes anabolic steroids. In the case of an anabolic steroid, which is included in Appendix D as well, when they are prescribed, script is only valid for six months, but any repeats for that script need to have an interval of time. So, Brian... Can you tell us what the Medical Council's role is in regulating New South Wales doctors? The Council's purpose is quite straightforward. It's to protect the health and safety of the public 
by managing complaints about doctors and students. So it takes a case management approach, which is holistic, to ensure registered doctors maintain quality standards, appropriate professional standards and remain fit to practice. And why does the council take inappropriate prescribing of drugs of addiction so seriously? Look, clearly the first concern is patient safety. Quantities addicts consume can be massive and would normally be lethal in a non-addicted person. Addiction leads also to comorbidities that impact both the physical and mental health of the addict, and then trafficking is another issue, can be associated potential violence and, of course, the legal endpoints. Brian, what does a typical prescribing complaint look like? A typical complaint relates to the prescribing of large quantities of opioids and often in greater frequency than is necessary. It's also looking at the OMED, oral morphine equivalent dose, being way outside the guidelines. What choices does council have in dealing with these prescribing complaints? A referral is usually uh, received from the HCCC. It can be from APRA and the medical board, but the council will respond by looking at the nature of the prescribing Patient safety is the prime concern and the doctor can be called in for an urgent assessment and that's what's called a Section 150, which is to assess the urgency of the complaint. Are there egregious amounts of prescribing of these opioids and um, often benzodiazepines and other drugs? But it can be a simple interview in the first instance, but because the complaint is usually of egregious quantities of prescribing and regular prescribing to people that could be on the opioid treatment program, then we uh, have to look at it in a a very serious way. Would you consider it a conduct issue or a clinical care issue? I think the first instance, because we are doctors and GPs concerned about health and safety of our patients, so the council looks at it firstly in a clinical contents, how dangerous is it for the protection of the public and uh, our patients. But of course, if you're actually doing it in a reckless fashion and not prescribing to general guidelines, then it can become a conduct issue. I'm aware that a risk point for patients becoming drug dependent is when they've come home from hospital, for example. They've had a knee replacement and they've been sent home with a a whacking load of endone and some oxycontin as well. And often that will begin the process of becoming drug dependent. How do you think a general practitioner needs to handle that sort of situation? When our patients come back, and we probably have referred them off to that knee replacement, then uh, we also know the normal recovery time. So we usually know what that patient's uh, pain threshold might be and what we'd expect them to complain of in terms of pain and the duration of that pain. We all have the patients with a low pain threshold and require longer, but it's supplying some evidence to the prescribing. It's actually spending the time to um, work out what else to do. I mean, sometimes it's instead of an opioid, it can be 
using simple mechanical methods. It could be a TENS machine, for example, if it were surgery for a back pain. It could be um, heat packs, physiotherapy. Those other treatment modalities that uh, would reduce the consumption of opioids. And I think having a plan as well, like a, a time-limited plan. Is, is always I think helpful. it's negotiating with the patient, making sure they understand what the plan of management is, what the duration of prescribing might be. I'm aware that there have been lately some complaints to council about whole practices where there have been groups of doctors who have been prescribing inappropriately. What do you think's gone wrong in those practices and, and what, how can a practice avoid this sort of group dynamic of poor prescribing? The problem for general practice is poor remuneration and that tends to lead to high volume, short consultations. But we actually have a lot of tools at our disposal. Almost all practices now prescribe uh, on their practice software, on the desktop software, and that provides tools to look at, one, who's prescribing, when the prescription was made, and what the quantity was. It's very important, and I do this in my practice, we put up in the alert, only Dr so-and-so can prescribe to this patient. And it's looking back at the prescription history to make sure that uh, it wasn't done last week. Having a sort of definite practice policy about these things. Yes, I think it's really important um, having a definite practice policy and identifying each patient linked to the doctor who's the only one to prescribe. And most patients will accept that sort of uh, attachment, if you like, to the doctor. So, Bruce, can you tell us about the black market in um, legally prescribed opioids? Yes, well, look, there's been changes um, over the last few years. And for the first time, we now know that there's actually organised criminal groups have come into trafficking Schedule 8 opioids in particular. These groups are very sophisticated. They import a Chinese printed PBS stationery. They have fake websites. There is an upsurge in forged prescriptions to pharmacies and they will know who are the doctors provide the least resistance to obtaining a prescription. In particular, they're after high-dose opioids, such as 40 milligram or 80 milligram oxycodone. They're after 2 milligram, 1 milligram alprazolam, and they're after fentanyl patches, be it 50 microgram, 75 microgram, or 100 microgram. These drugs now have a high value, illicitly, and they are trafficked very commonly to the effect that these prescription drugs now have overtaken the traditional illicit opioids such as heroin. Unfortunately, this is not going away and I think doctors need to be alert to the fact that if a patient comes to them, claims to have come from the country, from overseas or about to go overseas, they don't know the history of this patient and they're requesting high-dose opioids, red flags should be going up. That brings out a lot of things that GPs need to be aware of when they're dealing with patients who are requesting or taking opioid medication. Anything else, Brian, that you think that general practitioners need to be aware of in the context of this black market for opioids? I think we just have to have vigilance as to the, the fact that there is one and also uh, look at those older patients who might be on selling 
their medications. So don't be duped simply by age. Yeah, I think that's called fossil farming. Yes. Yes. Brian, in, in the context of prescribing drugs of addiction, what are some of the key things doctors and practices can do to reduce the risk of inappropriate prescribing? I think the first thing is to apply the principles you would to any other prescribing. So get the evidence, take the history, do the physical examination, work out your treatment plan. Then if you're going to prescribe opioids, drugs of dependence, make sure you're starting at a low dose, that you have the patient's cooperation and understanding and be aware that there is very cunning black market that the evidence you might be presented with in terms of letters may in fact be false Mm. and forgeries. Yeah, it's really important to go to the source, isn't it, when you're getting information about patients' histories. If it's a new patient and they're presenting with documents, make sure they're real documents. And Bruce, what in your view can New South Wales doctors do to reduce their risk of inappropriate prescribing? Well, first of all, I think to be aware of the regulatory framework in which we're all operating. Secondly, to be aware in the case of Schedule opioids of the need to have an authority where that's applicable. And the third part would be in the case of Schedule opioids to make yourself aware of the oral morphine equivalent daily dose. For example, we know that there's many doctors don't understand that 100 microgram per hour fentanyl patches is the equivalent of a patient having 300 milligrams of morphine orally each day. It's a lot. Keeping up to date with changes in relation to prescribing with S4Ds and S8s and also new medications as well can be challenging for busy doctors. Brian, what do you think that doctors can do to keep on top of this? I think it's always being aware that prescription of opioids is the greatest addiction problem. We need to include in our regular CPD or updating what are the rules and regulations. So it's not just seeing the media stuff, but it's actually investigating further. Bruce, what sources of information should medical practitioners be using to keep up to date? Look, I think the first point would be to ensure that professional journals, which are published as much as possible, keep up to date with uh, relevant articles which are published in, in those. A good source of information is by going on to the New South Wales Health Pharmaceutical Services website. There's a heck of a lot of information there and that can be easily reached by just Googling up New South Wales Health Pharmaceutical Services. There's many links which will assist doctors, including tactics on how to deal with patients who are demanding schedulate opioids and and a lot of other information as well. I find the NPS information quite good too. It is, yes. So changing tack here, in other jurisdictions, um, Victoria and Tasmania, they've started real-time monitoring of prescribing. Where are we at in New South Wales with this? New South Wales Health has a commitment to real-time prescription monitoring. That project has commenced. There was some seed funding received the last financial year and that was to provide a business case and I can say to you right now that that project is progressing. The end point, at this point we don't really know when it's likely to be in effect 
But I can say in New South Wales at the same time we're also looking at a new authority management system which will help streamline the need for authorities. I think we're all looking forward to that. So in summary, the takeaways from, from what I've heard you both say are that as doctors we need to be vigilant when patients, particularly new patients, are requesting opioid medications or drugs of dependence, but also when we've got patients, regular patients, who have dosages that are climbing. Secondly, that we need to be aware of the regulatory framework in New South Wales. When you need to apply for an authority, the difference between a New South Wales Health Authority and a PBS authority. And thirdly, that there's benefit in using one of the OMED, the oral morphine equivalent calculators to get a real sense of how much medication our patients are per day. Dr Brian Morton and Bruce Batty, thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us today. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Yeah, many thanks. You've been listening to part one of the New South Wales Medical Council's special focus on the prescribing of opioids and drugs of addiction. Coming up in part two, we hear from Dr Simon Cowap. How should GPs respond to doctor shoppers? How do you manage patient expectations? And where can you find the tools you need to reduce your risk of inappropriate prescribing? You can access various links and resources by clicking on the View Description button located right here on the podcast player. And if you'd like further information on any of the content in this podcast, you can also contact the Medical Council of New South Wales via their website, mcnsw.org.au. 